Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? And we stand out of respect for the authority of God himself as he's revealed himself through this Word. Beginning in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father of our Lord Jesus and our Father, we need at this moment a more enduring word than our own words today. Reveal yourself to us by the power of your Holy Spirit through the preaching of your word. Dislodge from us all those distracting thoughts. And instead, would you Quiet our minds, quiet our minds that we may receive what you instruct us in today. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We live right now in a world of identity crisis. Christians and non-Christians alike wake up and they look in the mirror wondering who they are. What's their purpose? How, how do they fit into this grand scheme that we call life? We've been told that, that what we feel or what we desire should be equated to who we are, our identity. We're told to kind of create and make our own identity. But maybe there's more to it than that. If, if what we feel or desire is who we are, then our identity is constantly in flux, isn't it? It's constantly driven by the most recent uh, impulse that surges through us. I wonder if this is some of what lies behind the baptism of Jesus that we're going to look at today. Um, Let me explain. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and we're going to be jumping around a bit today, um, so bear with that. But Hebrews tells us that, that we have Jesus as a sympathetic high priest, right? One who has felt deeply in his very human bones those same struggles of things like identity. We, we tend to kind of recreate Jesus into this kind of superman uh, who's got everything already fastened down. But the gospel suggests actually a different path, though he is the God-man. Make no mistake that. <laughs> this is why uh, in the Gospel of Luke, for instance, Luke 
describes that Jesus in his early years is, is growing in wisdom and growing in understanding. Jesus grows in the Gospels to understand who he is. So, in the Gospels here, when Jesus appears publicly for the first time at his baptism, this is his first public ministry moment, you have to think that, that Jesus was feeling, I don't know, maybe just a, a bit awkward coming down to the Jordan River. I mean, after all, remember, he is the son of a simple craftsman. Yet he believes simultaneously that, that he's to launch a public ministry that, that very well might upend the entire social order of Judea. And where does he choose to begin this? Luke doesn't explicitly say here, but the rest of the Gospels show us that he begins this at the Jordan River, right? The Jordan River. The Jordan cuts this really deep valley on the eastern side of Israel. And to the west, you have the kind of the Galilean hills in the north and the Judean hills in the south. And to the east, you have these towering high summits of what used to be ancient Moab and ancient Amnon. The Jordan River flowed through here, not only with water, but with sensational memories that gave life to the Jewish people. It was the very place that the God of the Exodus ushered the people across the waters with Joshua leading them leading them away from Egypt, their former land, and leading them into the promised land at the Jordan. The Jordan kind of represented the dividing boundary between the people of God on the one hand and the rest of the world out there. And here comes Jesus to this point, the very beginning of his ministry. And he comes to turn it, all of this, upside down in front of his in front of his cousin, no less. You know, these thoughts, I imagine, and more were kind of going through his mind as Jesus is immersed under the cool waters of the Jordan. Who is he to be here? Who's he to to be this one sent from God? Even John, you'll note in the gospel accounts, was, was kind of a bit confused about what was going on here. What's happening? Why are you, Jesus, why are you coming? But then, he's, as he's kind of brought up out of the water and, and he breaks forth from the water, suddenly the heavens break forth and the Spirit of God comes down and then God speaks. He speaks and says, You are my beloved Son in whom or with you I am well pleased. These these words mark the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. If you look just at the very next verse that we did not read, verse 23. So right after these words, right after the baptism of Jesus, Luke says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. These words mark the start of the public ministry of Jesus. And here at the Jordan, the God of Israel identifies Jesus as his son. He is his 
Father. Identifying Jesus here as the Son and and God as his Father brings to climax a, a long, twisting narrative that began in the Old Testament. It began particularly in Exodus 4 when Moses received instructions from God about what to say to Pharaoh, remember? You know, remember, Pharaoh had, had given the Hebrews their identity. He told them what their identity was. And what was that? Slave. That's your identity, Hebrews. Day and night, the Hebrews heard the Egyptians say to them, you are slaves. But then God tells Moses to say to Pharaoh, the slave driver, he says to him in verse 22, chapter 4, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. See, Yahweh here, Yahweh, the name of of God, Yahweh declares to the world in this moment that Israel's identity is as the son of Yahweh, not slaves of Egypt. And now, in Luke, in the Gospels, the God of the Exodus now declares that Jesus is his son. God's fatherhood toward Jesus is rooted in these Exodus images. He is the father who rescues his people. He is the father who delivers his people from enslavement and captivity. He is the father who sustains his people through 40 years in the wilderness. And he is the father who stops at nothing to bring his people across the Jordan into a new land so that they can flourish under his care. And this is precisely where Jesus is standing. In Jesus' baptism, God declares that Jesus, his identity is found in having God as his father. He clarifies for Jesus, and he clarifies for all who are watching who this Jesus really is, who Jesus belongs to. If, if there was any question about who Jesus' father was, or if he was, in fact, fatherless, as some, as you read in the Gospels, kind of attacked him for, there's, there's no question anymore at this moment, is there? In many respects, we are all fatherless. At least we were. Even if we had good fathers, and many of us did, and I did, even if we had good fathers, many still kind of deep down wish for something even greater. The, you know, the, the worst fathers repel us away. And, and we look for someone not like our father, yet still is a father to us. And the best fathers put a taste in our mouths that we want to keep tasting, but can't quite get even into our old age. Both of these experiences hint to us that there is indeed 
a greater father. All, all our longings are like kind of like signposts driving toward that something out there. Longing for one who, who satisfies us with a fatherly presence and fatherly approval. I've heard this from people as young as five and as old as a hundred. The Bible tells the story of how we were fatherless. The prophets describe our rebellion as rejecting our father, being an orphan with no one to turn to. And yet God comes. God comes to us as father and shows compassion to the fatherless. The Psalms especially testify this. Psalm 68, for instance, in verse 4 and 5, states that God is father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God and his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. Psalm 10.14 states that God has been the helper of the fatherless. Psalm 146 verse 9 states that the Lord watches over the sojourners and he upholds the widow and the fatherless. This father, the God of Israel, is one who has compassion on all the fatherless, including you and me. This theme then comes to kind of full birth in the New Testament. When God as Father adopts us fatherless people, he adopts us as sons, co-heirs with Christ. In, in our language today, we could say that he has adopted us as sons and daughters. But in the days of the authors of Scripture, the significance of us becoming sons is that the sons were the ones who, who received all the promises of the Father. So in many ways, Christianity in, in the New Testament period, Christianity kind of actually raises the status of everyone to sons. That is, sons of God. And Paul fleshes this out, as you may know, in both Romans 8 and in Galatians 3 and 4. Specifically, uh, Galatians 3, the end of Galatians 3 is very instructive for us. For when Paul says in uh, verse, verse 26, he says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You are a son of God, adopted by him. We join Christ and having God as our father. That's who your father is. This is anticipated even in the gospels where Jesus teaches his followers to pray. How? How does he teach us to pray? We'll try this one more time. How does he teach us to pray? That's right. 
He calls us to call God. You have to realize how, how momentous this is when he does that. He's telling the, the Jews to turn and call on God our Father. Or in John 20, after Jesus is raised from the dead, he has this interaction with Mary Magdalene, and then he tells Mary where he's going to go, and he says to her that he's returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. See, the miracle of Christianity, the miracle of Christianity is that through Jesus, we are no longer fatherless. Joined, joined to Christ, God now declares us to be the sons of God. J.I. Packer once said, and I, and I think it's in knowing God, he says this, but it may not be, but I know he said this. J.I. Packer once said that, that what a Christian is, a Christian is one who has God for father. Christian is one who has God for his father. That's what a Christian is. That is a Christian's identity. While the secular world around us is telling us to make our own identity, Christianity says that our identity is given to us by the father. We are sons of the father. This never changes if you are a Christian. It is constant. Even unto your old age, you are his son. You are his son. The father says you are not defined by your inadequacies. You're not defined by that that same sin struggle that you keep experiencing over and over. You are not defined by those urges that are kind of racing through you at times. You're not defined by those failures that haunt you in the back of your head at night. Rather, you are defined by the Father as his child, his son. And as his son, the Father spills over to you all the promises and all the rights and all the gifts of a good father to his son. This means, this means lots of things. <laughs> this means many things that, that we ought to linger over and be, be encouraged by. The, the fatherhood of God is what sustained Jesus himself in his own vocation and is what sustains you and me. Look back at Luke 3. Back in Luke 3. I'm in Galatians. That won't help. Back in Luke 3, immediately after the baptism of Jesus, Luke gives this genealogy that traces Jesus himself in his own vocation, traces him right back. You know, we have Joseph the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph. I'm not going to read them all. It goes all the way down till you get to verse 38. When you read the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke wants to underscore how central this identity 
was to Jesus. It is literally what carried Jesus through the wilderness. Look at the next chapter, the very next event after this baptism, after this genealogy, the very next story, the very next true story, Luke 4, the temptation of Jesus. Many of you know this story very well, I know. For 40 days, Jesus traverses the hot and the rocky wilderness that probably was lying south and east of Jerusalem. And doing this, he's kind of identifying with Israel's wanderings in the wilderness. And during this time, Jesus too, like Israel, grows, grows hungry and he grows tired and exhausted. He longed for this trial to be over. You know, for, for those who've, who've gone through that area, you, you know that when you get there, this is not the land flowing with milk and honey in the wilderness here. It's a horrible area. And just, just for when it can't get any worse for Jesus as he's traveling through this, just when it can't get any worse, the devil shows up. The devil comes along. And, and twice the devil speaks to him with temptations beginning this way when he says, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. See, the devil attacks Jesus right at the heart of his identity. Who are you, Jesus? How do you see yourself, Jesus, if you are the son of God? Jesus could have caved right there. Many of us do. The the temptations of Christ was a battle over his identity and whose son he really was. That's what the temptations were. And, And the same is true, in fact, for each of us. Indeed, what, uh, what the devil really was after was to pretend like he could be father to Jesus. So he comes along and he tries to assume the role of a father by offering Jesus things like provision. You know, turn those stones into bread, Jesus. Provision. I'll provide for you. Or he offers him things like protection. If you really are the son of God, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. You'll be protected. Offering him protection. And then the ultimate, the devil comes up and says, if you really are the son of God, I will give you as a father does an inheritance. All this you see, Jesus, is mine, and I will give it to you. So as a pseudo-father, he comes in and tries to offer Jesus a different fatherhood. But instead, Jesus' identity as the Son of God the Father sustains him sustains him. He comes out of the temptations, sustained and fixed on his baptism 
declaration of who he is. It's no coincidence that just before this account, God the Father makes certain to Jesus that he is indeed his beloved son. He is indeed the one he is well pleased with. And with these words in his head and these words in his heart, Jesus was able to go into the wilderness and face the heat of hell itself. And as co-heirs of Christ, like our elder brother, Jesus, we too can be certain of our identity in the wilderness. Your wilderness journeys are going to make you doubt your identity. They're going to make you doubt the fatherhood of God. You know, Satan in this world will offer to you a different identity and a different fatherhood that's going to promise things like provisions and protection and inheritance. But we have a father, brothers. We have a father, sisters, whose promises over us are sure and steadfast. The God of the Exodus, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, stands with us in the wilderness. You are not alone. Your Father, your Heavenly Father, is with you. Not only that, not only that, but the Father loves us. The Father loves us. This, this seems so elementary even to say that, doesn't it? That's what we sing as little kids. Yet, it is one of the most powerful truths of the Christian life that we too frequently gloss over. I remember uh, sitting in a Panera with Rick Schatz once, a couple years back, and we were just chatting some about what God had been teaching us through the scriptures. And he just looks at me and he says, I've just been marveling that, that the Father loves me. And at first I kind of thought, Rick, I passed over that a long time ago. <laughs> no, come on. But then letting that sink down, The Father loves you. This this is powerful. And, and, And the New Testament appeals to this over and over and over because it knows that our identity is tied to the Father and we need to keep hearing this, that the Father loves us. You just look at uh, uh, the Gospel of John. Jesus brings this up repeatedly, talking about how the Father loves him, and because we are united to him in Christ, the Father loves us. Just uh, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 14, Jesus says, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. There's father language going on. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. And then here it comes, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And then 
in the same series of speeches from Jesus. And these are all taking place as kind of the last words of Jesus to his disciples. This is what he wants them to hear. So in chapter 16, in verse 26, he says, In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, verse 27, for the Father himself loves you. For the Father himself loves you. And then literally his last word he, that's recorded that he says to the disciples before he's arrested, the very last word in chapter 17, as he's praying to the Father, In chapter 17, verse 26, he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. The love of their father. You know, the first letter of John makes this even more explicit. Flipping over to 1 John. I told you we'd be jumping around. 1 John all over 1 John, really, but chapter 3 especially I've been pondering and thinking about when he says in verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us? See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God? John hasn't made this elementary. He's still stuck in it. He's just marveling at it. He says, what kind of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, our Father, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Because sons are brought into the presence of their father. The father loves you. Isn't that amazing? I I think about how goofy I am. Like, I I look like a grasshopper. I mean, you know, you're laughing because you know it's true, Linda. We're, We're just, I think of Psalm 8. And Psalm 8 says things like, what is man that you, that you ponder him? What, what is man? You know, I, I walk around every day constantly doing the same stupid things every day, saying the same dumb things to my wife or saying getting angry at my kids again for the 10th time or repeat the same sin over and over. But the Father loves me. The Father loves you. Now, make no mistake, the Father will discipline us, right? I'm not, we're, we're, this, the sermon's not about that, but the Father, his love for us will discipline us and conform us to his image. But the Father loves us. Let that just tickle your brain for a while. Hear what the Spirit of God says to the children of God, the followers of Jesus. The Father loves you. He made you in his image. He who loved Israel and rescued her from the the grips of Pharaoh will spare no expense in loving you. 
Indeed, he has already spared no expense in the giving of his son to battle the forces of hell on your behalf on the cross. This is love. As 1 John 4.10 so famously says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, right? But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, the father loves you. He loves you and he will provide for you in your wilderness. At Jesus's baptism, the father secured the identity of Jesus as son. And and this word from the father to his son, Jesus, reverberates through the rest of the gospels into the church, down to you and me today. Don't forget who you are. We too are sons of God through the miracle of adoption. Now, I don't know what kinds of words you've heard from your earthly father. And I don't know what kinds of words the the devil tells you as a pseudo-father. But when, when the heavenly father looks at Jesus, his son, He sees you, and he says, you are my son. With you, I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, our Father, we thank you for the great mercy to call you our Father who art in heaven. We thank you for your love for the people of God, for your children to make us sons. And we pray and ask that you would just work, work this reality deep into our hearts, that our identity is principally to be sons of the Father, sons of God. Work that into our hearts, O oh God. In the name of your Son, our elder brother Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.